You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about some recent events in the uh, Middle East, particularly what's happened in Saudi Arabia, which has brought up the question of Sunnis versus Shiites. And we want to ask the question, what's the difference here? The Saudi Arabia-Iran split, where uh, the Saudis have beheaded a very uh, well-known Shia cleric from uh, eastern Saudi Arabia and the treatment of this in the media. And so there's, there's a lot of questions that are swirling around in the Middle East and the comparison with ISIS. What's the difference between ISIS and Saudi Arabia? Is there any difference? They both practice Wahhabism, so I want to touch about these kinds of issues. But we go back to our basic premise, ladies and gentlemen, about the United States being a war-based economy. And this is really pretty evident here in this incident in Saudi Arabia where these um, human rights violations are, are very clear. But this does not deter the United States. Just three days before these executions, beheading, uh, there were some 47 people, including four pro-democracy protesters, and most of those were were beheaded. Three days before these executions by beheading, the Pentagon announced some major contracts, defense contracts, with Saudi Arabia. And that's that's what it's all about, is the war-based economy always getting ready for war, selling armaments. We've seen what's happened with Saudi Arabia in Yemen and the the war that is being carried on in Yemen by Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of questions here that are swirling around. So why don't we first talk about just the fact that the media has been calling these executions, Chuck. Okay, well, uh, Tom, this is really interesting because listeners who think back uh, will know that if they actually do follow the news, it's never been any secret that Saudi Arabia practices a lethal form of discipline that keeps the citizens in line. It's basically run at the top by powerful sheiks who are infamous for not following any laws at all. For instance, uh, you can get your head removed in Saudi Arabia for taking drugs, but there have been royal princes who've been caught smuggling in tons of drugs. So alcohol is absolutely forbidden in Saudi Arabia, except for the royal family who's infamous for loving to drink alcohol. It's got two sets of rules. The rules that the Saudi government has always used to control the citizens has been their religion, which they have termed as Wahhabi. Wahhabi was was a Saudi at one time that started a little sect of some kind of so-called ultra-conservative, it's not, let's use a different word, ultra-brutal punishment and a very powerful discipline. 
Essentially, it goes back to the same thing that Jesus lived under, which, of course, was the war-based economy and society of his day, where, of course, they crucified people publicly and made spectacles of uh, their brutal death uh, in order to keep the citizens in line. Wahhabism is based upon essentially the same principle. Thus, they've chopped hands off for this and that. Adultery is punishable. Uh, I was kind of surprised by this, but it's by stoning. They don't use the chop for adultery. They use beheading for uh, such crimes as resisting the government or planning or plotting against the government or proclaiming democracy. That would be a good good reason to be have your head chopped off. So Wahhabism is essentially a discipline. It's not a religion. Uh, it goes by a religious term. The Wahhabis claim to be Sunni Muslims. And so we'll get into discussing what is a Sunni Muslim. Over in Iran, the, most of the Muslims are Shi'i. They call themselves Shi'i. They also have powerful leadership at the top. However, they're famous for being not at all promiscuous and lavish in the way they act. So there's a big difference. Then we have this religion called the Shi'is, and we're supposed to believe that there's a constant war going on between the Sunnis and the Shi'is, and our government, our unelected super-government, promotes this idea. And uh, from this, we get this notion Tom talked about, that we live in a war-based society or a war-based economy, uh, where, of course, uh, money is printed to buy weapons, which are then given or sold to Saudi Arabia. And uh, we say, uh, we hold these truths, that the war-based economy always will and does result in a war-accepting society. So we become a, a kind of a, a war-tolerant society. And uh, the obvious results of that are uh, we watch beheadings, killings, brutality, mass murder, war in faraway places uh, routinely on a day-to-day -day basis and don't give it much thought. And it uh, permeates our churches to the point where uh, the churches say very little about it as well. So that's where we hold these truths comes in. Our effort is to uncover some of these truths and then to find a way to apply them back to our churches as best we can. And uh, fortunately, we are having some following and uh, we're not alone in what we're doing. Tom? Well, one of the interesting things, of course, all these events in the Middle East, you have to look and step back and kind of look at the big picture and... There's a couple of interesting articles here. We uh, published one of them under the title, War is Realizing the Israelizing of the World. Israel is a player in this. Obviously, they're in the region. They've been sort of low-key here lately. But this article by Dan Sanchez and is available on our website. But he references an article in the 1980s by an Israeli diplomat and journalist Oded Yinan is explicit in regard of divide and conquer. In other words, what we're seeing, uh, one of the methods, of course, is to get factions fighting. And so what we see in the case of the Sunnis and Shiites is exactly that, that these differences have been brought to light and fed. And this article in the 80s called the Yinan Plan calls for the quote, dissolution of the entire Arab world, including Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula. Each country was to be made 
to fall apart along sectarian and ethnic lines, after which each resulting fragment would be hostile to its neighbor. And then uh, the state of affairs will be the guarantee for peace and security in the area in the long run for Israel. That's what they're planning there. Quote, every kind of inter-Arab confrontation will assist us, meaning the Israelis, in the short run and will shorten the way to the more important aim of breaking up Iraq into denominations as in Syria and in Lebanon. Now that was back in the 1980s, so we know what's happened in 1991 with the first Gulf War under George Herbert Walker Bush and then the no-flying zone and embargoes under Bill Clinton, and then, of course, the uh, 2003 war on Iraq, and we've seen the country going into fragments because of the way the United States handled the occupation, the war. And so what we have here is really uh, kind of looks like what the Israelis have forecasted is coming true because it should be obvious to, to anybody looking at the situation when you have fragmented countries, they're uh, much easier to deal with. You don't need as much strength. And so if you get them fighting among themselves, of course, on the other hand, we consider that what Israel is doing and the United States are, in essence, committing national suicide. Uh, we know what happens to empires. They eventually collapse from within, and we see that decay. Well, Tom, what you say is very interesting because Israel has been extremely quiet during the entire Syrian uh, uprising. They have uh, not participated. They may have had uh, subtle influence, but they stayed out of it. This is reminiscent of what happened when the United States, uh, through our unelected supra-government, bombed uh, Iraq for the first time in 1991, and Israel was, of course, uh, thought to be a big threat in the war, and they simply agreed to stay out if the United States would do a good enough job of destroying Iraq, and they did stay out. So they managed to play it real cool and act like they were not involved. Israel has been non-involved largely during, at least in, a, in an obvious sense, they haven't been obviously involved in the situation in Syria even though it's right on their border. And well, they have made some airstrikes into... With a, with a few exceptions, but generally speaking, yeah. they've been a, a bit player in the program. Well, uh, one of the examples, Chuck, of a low-key action by the uh, Israelis, here's an article from Voltaire, which is a French publication. More than 500 jihadists cared for at the Ziev Medical Center in northern Israel. And so, you know, here they are uh, actually uh, caring for some of the... Well, they would just say they're humanitarians doing their duty to mankind. Yeah. So they'd have a good excuse for that. That wouldn't be any problem at all for them if you confronted them. Well, exactly. I want to ask you a question, however, Tom. You've been around a long time. You've been in mosques. You know, uh, you met imams. Can you tell me what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shiite? Well... Briefly, I think at the death of Muhammad, there was a schism, and Muhammad had no direct heir. And so there was some relative, I may not be getting it exactly, but there was some kind of a lineage there that was continued, and that became the Shia. 
and the Sunni basically uh, went another direction where by merit and so forth the imams came about. So there's more of a hierarchy in the Shia as opposed to the Sunni. That reminds me of uh, a friend of mine who tried to explain it to me one time. He was the president of a Sunni mosque, and he served one year, and for that one year, totally volunteered, paid absolutely nothing. He worked almost full-time as the president of this mosque in California. And I said, what is the Shia and what's the Sunni? And he said, well, uh, Chuck, it's kind of like the Catholics and the Protestants. Think about the Sunnis uh, as being sort of the Protestants and the Shiites as being sort of like the Catholics. That was sort of where he left it. He didn't elaborate at all. Uh, but that is kind of what you just said. The Shiites believe there's sort of a hierarchy that dates back somehow to Muhammad, to Muhammad's successor, uh, or to maybe Muhammad himself. I don't know. You say he didn't leave an heir. Uh, I don't know if he did or didn't. We'd have to ask a, a Muslim. Maybe we can get one on. Uh, but the, this is the kind of a difference that is is kind of similar to the Catholic Protestant difference. In other words, they both use the same Quran, as best I know. Uh, is that not true? Uh, Sunnis and Shiites? I believe so. I believe they do. So it's form of matter. Now, I've been very impressed with the, the Muslims I knew uh, who turned out. I didn't even know what kind of Muslim they were. But they had this structure where people donated their time to running the association. They had an association that basically owned the local mosque. And it was run entirely by volunteers in it. It was kind of admirable uh, the way they did it, the, the uh, dedication that, that they put into it. However, I had this uh, strange occasion. I was in Detroit, and I was asked to speak at a mosque, and they had an association attached to it that was uh, kind of unique, I guess. And at the end of my talk, the leader said, Chuck, we've arranged another talk for you across town. These four young men, or I think maybe three young men, had been listening to me, and they were appointed immediately by the imam to uh, drive me across town to the other mosque, which, which had their meeting, they'd arranged their meeting in such a way that I could come over there after their meeting was over. And uh, when I got there, uh, they, the lads all went in, and they informed me that this was a Shiite mosque. Uh, I couldn't tell the difference. The people communicated with each other. The three kids who took me over, all teenagers, they didn't have dates. They didn't do much dating. Uh, one of them was talking about getting married, apparently was engaged. They sat and listened to me a second time at the Shiite mosque, and then we loaded back up in the car and went back uh, where they put me up for the night. So I would not have known I was in a Shiite mosque had they not told me. I didn't see any different. The people didn't act any different. Uh, they were equally courteous and polite and fair-minded. And so I went away thinking, well... Uh, it seems like, at least from what I see, it's, it's uh, something of form over substance. But apparently there is no reason for them to have wars over what they believe. If they have wars, it has nothing to do with belief. It has to do with politics. Well, Chuck, wouldn't it be, I mean, you have uh, Wahhabism, which is kind of like a sect of the Sunni branch of Islam, and that certainly is more militant. Obviously, you look at what ISIS is doing. They are very, very militant. It would appear on the surface that that certainly doesn't reflect what the most 
of the uh, Muslims believe. Right, that's true, Tom. And what we have, uh, I don't know if we started this or not, but apparently this is going around the Internet in a, in a, in a viral fashion, as, as they say. Everybody's passing it along and asking the question. The Wahhabis chop people's heads off. The uh, Saudi Arabians, whatever they call themselves, chop people's heads off. Could it be that there's a relationship here? And that question is, is being asked very widely. And that has led me to write this little article that I wrote that points out that all of a sudden, media all over the world is no longer accusing the Saudi Arabians of beheading people because they were being associated, I think correctly, with the ISIS people who were also beheading people. So, I mean, here you have two groups. They both believe in a violent discipline. They act alike. They look alike. They dress alike. Hmm, maybe they are alike. And uh, so what's really surprising, Tom, is that every media I can find, all the media I can find is going along with this. Uh, even uh, Al Jazeera, which is supposed to have some friendly relationship with Islamic countries, and, and that's been called to question, but even they are not pressing the issue of uh, the Saudis beheading these 47 people, actually 40, yeah, 47, including this leader, that has resulted in what seems to be uh, the, the start of a promoted war, a new promoted war. So instead of the United States or Israel bombing Iran, as they have threatened to do for so long, we suddenly have the Saudi Arabian government threatening Iran. And at yeah. the same time, as you pointed out, the United States has rewarded the Saudi government with a huge military gifts, or maybe they do buy it with oil money. I don't know in this case whether this was, these were purchases or grants. The United States, of course, give Israel the bombs to do the bombing if they do the bombing. So now let's tie them together. Somehow Wahhabism and ISIS are very much similar. And somehow both of them are very similar to the U.S. unelected supra-government. They all seem to function together. Isn't that strange? <laughs> very strange indeed, and it's all the more reason, ladies and gentlemen, to, uh, to look to alternative media and sources because it does take a little bit of research and digging. Sadly, of course, most Americans are oblivious to what's going on because they really don't question their media or even their government. So our bottom line to you, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this, if you are curious, do some checking uh, on your own, and we hope that you spread the message and wake people up, because that's what it's all about. Our war-based economy is chugging along here and looking for another war and could come at any time in the, in the Middle East here. And by all means, read the little story, The Wall Street Skew of the Saudi-Iranian Rift. Start there, and then there are several good articles Tom has posted that, uh, that support this that are much more detailed and complicated, but uh, which uh, do fit right in. Glenn, do you have any questions or comments? Yeah, I was wondering, um, Chuck, you brought in the term the U.S. super government. I don't think the U.S. government is immune to uh, fault as well. They've got their hands in here somehow, but 
What are you defining as the supergovernment? I'm using the term USUSG, USUSG as an acronym, and it stands for the U.S. Unelected Supra, that being a Latin word, the Latin Supra, not Superman, but above, Supra above government. So it's the U.S. Unelected Supra Gov. And what I'm contending here is that we have a powerful unelected government that uh, is made up of some of Wall Street, a lot of bankers, a thing called the Federal Reserve, other powerful individuals who swing billions and multi-billions of dollars in elections and control elections, uh, a media that seems to be totally out of our control. And so all clumped together, you have to picture it in your own mind what you think the super government is, but they're unelected. So the U.S. unelected supra government is up to you to define. You look and you see who you think they are. Well, look at just the, all the alphabet uh, agencies. Those from the administration are unelected. Yeah. Uh, FBI, NSA, CIA, you can go yeah. down the list. Right. Uh, That's all right. and, yeah, and, and intelligence agencies we don't even dream of. And all of these are run by appointed guys. None mm-hmm. of them are elected. Mm-hmm. Good so point. when you put it all together, we have a super government who is unelected, and that's our problem. And I think it's, you know, like you said, it's the bankers, the money the money system behind the scenes that yeah. is really calling the shots. Yes, money does count, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Money, money, money trumps votes. Money trumps population. Mm-hmm. True. Sadly, but true. Yeah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you find this program of interest and pass it on. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.